Our sermon text this morning comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. This book is not as easily found as the book of Revelation is, so you'll find it on page 554 in your pew Bible, page 554, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And as we're turning to that passage, um, if you'll forgive me just to take a moment to uh, thank you, uh, to thank you for your partnership in the gospel. Uh, We recognize that a seminary thrives, so to speak, on finishing schools that are around that seminary, and yours is one of them. A church can do uh, what a seminary cannot. Mostly what we do is, is in the classroom. And there's, there are many skills that we're trying to describe and inculcate, but they can really only take place in a local church. And this church has, has been a, a faithful partner uh, with Westminster Seminary California for the gospel. I'm new here, but I've been here long enough to see already the fruit of some of your, your labor. So thank you uh, for that ministry. We're very, very grateful for it. Let's turn our attention to God's word, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has a worker? From his toil. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it, so that people fear before him. That which is, already has been. That which is to be, already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of 
man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there was nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Let's pray. Our gracious God and our Father, we come to this place with particular burdens that are upon our hearts, perhaps even those that we have not expressed to anyone else. But all these things are transparent before you. You see the things that cause us anxiety, the things that cause us to fear, and perhaps even the things that cause us to doubt, perhaps even to doubt your goodness and your wisdom and to wonder why it is that we experience the things that we do. Why is this season upon us at this time? What purposes do you have? And much of this is hidden from us, and so you call us to faith and to trust in you, and you feed that faith through the word of God. And so we pray that you would have that ministry in us this morning, that you would encourage us to look to Christ and to look to his sovereign care. We pray that you would inflame our love for him and fill our hearts with hope, hope eternal. We turn to you because you alone can do this work by your Holy Spirit working in us through your living and active word. And we do pray this, Father, for our improvement in grace, but most of all for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So let me begin with a question this morning. What season is it? And depending upon what you like to do and how you see uh, things in your life, some of you go to sports and you're thinking, well, it's basketball season because we're in the middle of March madness. And I'm sorry for some of you whose brackets have fallen apart. Some of you are thankful. It looks like we have a baseball season. But some of you are not into sports. And as soon as I said, what season is it? You were saying to yourself, is it fishing or hunting season? Some of you, very few of you, were wondering whether it's opera season. And um, somewhere in Imperial County, it's harvest season for something. In California, Southern California, it's always tourist season. Two years ago, my wife and I moved from Chicago. In Chicago, we said there are only two seasons. There's winter, then there's construction season. (laughs) But our passage is not really about that kind of seasons. It's talking about people and the seasons that we experience, the seasons that we find ourselves in. And some of us in this room are in a season where we are rejoicing. And some of us in a season perhaps where we are crying. Some of us are in a, a season that is very, very busy. And some of us are in a season where we are retiring. And some of us perhaps don't realize that we're at the very beginning of a season. And some of us don't realize that we're at the very end of a season. Those are the patterns that you and I experience in life. It's the way we experience time itself. And that's what this chapter is all about. It's about time. And that is actually our subject for the first nine verses, time. And if you're a note taker, verses 10 through 15 is about time eternal, time eternal. Then verses 16 through 22, time runs out, time runs out. So verses 1 through 9, time, verses 10 through 15, time eternal. Then verses 16 through 22, time runs out. And some of you who are my age or a little bit older are wondering, I wonder when he's going to mention the birds in their song, turn, turn, turn. I'm not going to. I just did. But seriously, what is, what is time? Time is the most commonly and most often used noun in the English language. This is the word that we use more than any other word. 
But what is it? And Augustine said, I know what time is until somebody comes to me, comes to me and asks me to explain it. And just think for a second. It's, it's almost impossible to describe it without using the word time, that sort of thing. But, but Augustine also reflected upon time, not as a concept, but time and how we experience it, how we experience time. And experience tells us that, that Einstein was right, that time is relative. It seems to come to us at different speeds. It runs at, at different speeds. Anybody in this room who's had children understands exactly what I'm talking about, that when a child is sleeping, time races by. You can't slow down enough. But when that same child is screaming or crying in the middle of the supermarket, time slows down immensely. Time is relative if you're sitting in a chair, depending upon whether that chair is in the dentist's office, and time never goes slower than it does in the dentist's office. Or if you're sitting in a movie theater, where two hours goes by just like that. We have a friend who said, when our children are young, the days are longer. As they get older, the years go faster. It's true. It's very profound. And it's getting to the heart of what we're talking about, that this is the way we experience time. And verse 1 says there's a time for everything. That human life is seasonal. It's seasonal. And the preacher, the author of this book, we're going to call him the preacher, is talking about how we experience time and events in time. And he says there's a time to begin, there's a, there's a time to finish, a time to plant, a time to reap, to gather, to spread, to encourage, to, to be discouraged, a time to laugh, a time to cry, a time to build up, a time to tear down. There's even a time for hugs and a time for hostility. And by naming these categories, he is just simply giving us the polar ends. He's giving us the extremes of these things. And so he's communicating to us, it's not just these things, but it's everything in between. That life is not just either pure laughter or pure crying. It's all the emotions that we feel in between these things. It's a continuum, sometimes bouncing back and forth more quickly than we'd like to. But this is, this is life, and it points to the completeness of life. It points to the fact that, that time spreads a shadow over everything. All these things, that these times they come and they go, and you and I are caught in these seasons. We're caught in this, in this time. And the point he's making is that you and I can't do anything about it. We are not in control. That we're not the author of time. We don't have a blueprint for time. Ten years ago, in every single high school prom, this song by Green Day was played. Time grabs you by the wrist, directs you where you where to go, so make the best of this test and don't ask why. I hope you had the time of your life. Now, if it wasn't for the last cheesy line of, in that song, it was actually pretty good. And it's saying it's exactly right. Time grabs you by the wrist and it just pulls you. And you, you can't do anything about that. And you can try to resist those seasons and you can live in denial. Reminds me that now I'm dating myself. There's a song by Hootie and the Blowfish called Time. It says, can you teach me about tomorrow and all the pain and the sorrow I'm running from? Because tomorrow's just another day and I don't believe in time. Well, it doesn't matter. Time believes in you. And you can't do anything about it. And you might as well have the attitude of a farmer who understands that that his whole life is, is wrapped by, by seasons and that there is a season to plow and there's a season to sow, there's a season to cultivate or to feed or to prune and a season to harvest. You can't resist that. But fundamental things apply as time 
goes by, as the song in Casablanca says. It's too fundamental to life. You can't resist this. This is the way it is. So, verse 9, the author asks a question he asks many times throughout this book. What does this have to do with my, with my job, with my labor, the things I'm applying my, my life to, where I put my hands if I'm caught up in these endless seasons, what is there to gain from my, my work? And here's where we have to appreciate something about the poem in verses 2 through 8, that that poem there, it has no order. There's no sequence. It doesn't go back and forth between the good things and the bad things. It's kind of jumbled up, that there's no pattern. We would even say it's, it's random. And that's part of the point. The way in which this book is written, just the literary style of it is is communicating as well, and that poem is communicating to us that you you can't predict this. You can't control these seasons. You can't control time. Jim Croce wrote, one of my favorite artists from the 70s, if I could put time in a bottle, but, but you can't. You can't control this. You can't squeeze in between the moments of time. There is no wrinkle in time. Unless you're Dr. Strange and you have a time infinity stone. (laughs) But he lost it. And so what he's saying is we go about our work knowing that we cannot control what, what comes and what goes. It's like the stock market. It's actually like everything else that's caught up in this web of time. Everything is caught up in in time. And so this creates a little bit of a problem, he says in verses 10 through 15. And here's the problem. If, if God has placed us within this created order of time, it creates a certain dilemma. And this is what he talks about in verses 10 through 11. And here's the dilemma, that you and I are busy with time, and yet we're curious about eternity. God's placed us within these seasons of time. We're concerned about it. Everybody wears a watch. They're caught up with time in the way that Christopher Nolan is in his movies. He's obsessed with time. Interstellar, Tenet, Dunkirk, Inception. He's always monkeying around with chronology and time. And we're the same way. We're kind of fixed in our minds about how much time do I have? And yet, eternity is something we think about all the time. We dwell upon this. And time to time, our, we're asking ourselves, what happens after death? Now, as Christians, we know, but we're still asking ourselves that question. We're, we're caught in time, yet we're asking ourselves about <clears throat> eternity. And so he says this, Though eternity burns in our hearts, it's hidden from us. It is hidden from our eyes. We can't see but God has designed in the future. We, we're not exactly sure about all he's accomplished. We cannot see as he does. We can't see from the beginning to the end. Isaiah 55, 8. God reminds us of this. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts and your thoughts. You need to be humbled by this that we cannot see. We don't have the master plan, and we can't see anything from its beginning to its end. And then he says this in verse 11, God has made everything beautiful in its time. The word there, beautiful, means proper. Let's just go with it for a second. God's made everything beautiful in its time. Beautiful? Look again at the poem. A time to kill, a time to break down, a time for casting stones, a time to hate, a time for war. Beautiful? Beautiful according to whom? 
See, that's the point, according to God. We can't see how all these things work out. We can't see many times what possible good use could there be for this particular season I'm in right now. How could God use that suffering or that sickness or that death? How could we say it's beautiful or it's proper? This is the problem. This is the problem. So there are two conclusions. The first conclusion in verses 12 to 13, the second in verses 14 to 15. So here's the first conclusion in verses 12 to 13. Be happy and take pleasure as long as you live. It's a gift from God. It's okay to enjoy the fruit of your hands. To have thrown yourself into a plan and to see that plan come together and it, and it has good results, it's okay to take satisfaction in that. It's okay to manage something, to manage a team, and everybody comes out winning in the end and to rejoice in that. Or to make something with your hands, to paint or to draw or to create music or something. That's, that's okay. This is, this is a gift. And it's okay to enjoy even the most simple things of life, to eat, to drink, to do good and, and to savor. And how you see that helps somebody. That's, that's okay. That's perfectly fine. That's actually the right attitude. Oliver Wendell Holmes, when he turned 94, decided to learn Greek. Somebody said, you turned 94 and you're learning Greek. Why would you do that? He said, well, it's now or never. (laughs) That's exactly what is being said here. Using the time God has given to you and to enjoy, to enjoy. But there's a second conclusion in verses 14 through 15, and he was touching on this in verses 10 and 11. That we're confronted again here by one of our limits as creatures. And we're bumping up against this reality that only God is unlimited, only he can see. The nature of God's works is that they endure forever. Everything he touches, what he creates, you can't add to it, you can't take away from it, he says. This is why people fear God. They recognize this. They see the handiwork of their creator. I lived in Alaska for three and a half years, and we used to say in Alaska, in Alaska there are no atheists. There can't be because you're being confronted by such magnificent beauty every day. But secondly, it's the nature of life. That which is already has been, what is to be already has been. He's talking here about the way we experience time that seems to be on a loop, that nothing can break the loop of the season. Somebody has said the more things change, the more they stay the same. There's an old Carly Simon song, nothing stays the same, but it's coming around again. It's a recognition of the same reality. The way we experience time, the way we see it, it just seems to be like many things are done again and again. There's nothing new under the sun is a phrase that you and I associate with this this book. But God does what we cannot. He not only sees what we cannot, but he does what we cannot. Look at this phrase. He seeks what has been driven away. Now, the word seeks here means that God searches for something. And he goes and he gets it. He, he gathers it like a shepherd does with lost sheep. This, it has a shepherding sort of tone to it. And it's pointing to the fact that there's so much that you and I in life, you and I can't remember. There's things that get lost in our memories. Our memories lose track of things. There, there are details and we kind of dismiss them or pass over them because they seem so insignificant. But they actually were significant. And that for God, there's 
There's truly nothing that's lost. That God fetches each of these back home and someday will God somehow corral all these things together. And perhaps you and I will see the meaning of those in heaven. It's confronting the fact that we're just so limited in the way which we experience things in this life and what we see and how we experience time. Well, in verses 16 to 22, he talks about how time runs out. You have to be patient. He doesn't get there right away. But he begins by talking about this. There's always a time for the righteous thing to be done. It's, it's that moment when you expect justice. There are those moments in particular where we really, really want something just to happen. But he says in verse 16, just at that moment when you expected the righteous thing to happen, it's a moment when you're confronted with the injustice of this world again. There's a terrible crime committed. There's a suspect. The trial went on for six weeks. The evidence is clear. It's undeniable. But the jury comes back with not guilty. And he's saying life is filled with those kind of moments. That's the way we experience time as well. We always say justice delayed is justice denied. There's a sort of impatience that we we feel and yearning towards for this wrong to be made right, for these things that are unjust to be corrected. But look where he goes in verse 17. There's hope. There's hope. We look beyond what we can experience. In verse 17, it says, God is going to address all these things, all these wrongs. He's going to judge the righteous and the wicked. Why? Because there is a time for every matter and for every work, including judgment. And that fills us with hope that God alone can sort all out all these messes and all these things that are so complicated where people are being hurt and and injured and we want things to be made right and sometimes we can't even get there ourselves but God can and in fact there are several details that the juries and judges miss or there's information that they they forgot there's things that get lost but God doesn't miss these things God doesn't forget And these details are not lost on him, and neither is the significance of details lost on him. But until then, what is he saying? These things test our faith. Even if they strike us as absurd. Vanity, this book likes to say. It's because we're limited in how we see. Now he talks about death, and this is one of the most important things, themes in this book, Death, the Great Silencer. He's talking about when time runs out. And he says, from our perspective, verse 19, death does not discriminate against species. He says here, everything that has breath dies eventually. And there doesn't even seem to be an advantage to any species. Dust returns to dust. That's how it seems. And if we were to judge by appearances, who knows where life goes after. Do animals have souls? Where do people go? He's, that's the questions he's, he's asking here. And again, this is a test of faith. Is this truly the case? Is there only death? Are we just dust in the wind? As Kansas used to say. So again, he says, enjoy the time that you have and the work that you have. Rejoice in it. This is our portion because we do not know what follows. And just as we cannot see the beginning, we cannot see the end. It's where we need to trust God. And as we think of the significance of this, we are reminded again that 
that we walk by faith, not by sight. And what we cannot see, God sees. And we experience these seasons in life, and they seem to come to us randomly, and they seem to come to us without explanation or directions written on them. Here's what to do with this season in your life. We're assured by God's word that nothing arbitrary happens to us. In fact, it's right to say nothing just happens to us. That everything is directed to us and for our good. And you know, you're ahead of me already, Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who love him, for those called according to his purpose. Now, I I don't know hardly any of you, and I don't know anything about your life, but I can say this based upon this passage. This season that you're in right now is not random. And that God sees. In fact, he knows better than we do what is best for us. And that includes timing. Don't be frustrated. This is a hard thing to say. Don't complain. He sees everything. He sees it from its beginning to its end, and he sees everything in between. And he tells us that every single bit that's in there, everything that happens in there in that whole sequence, everything is consecrated in order to bring about the plan that God has had for you from the very beginning. And he brings it into your life at just the right time in just the right way, in just the right place. It doesn't always feel that way. But this is the God who promises to bring light out of the darkest seasons of our life, who miraculously can bring joy out of our misery. This is the God who brings life from the death. He does it all the time. You might find yourself in a season of great temptation, but he's using that to make you wiser to the devil, to the world, to your own sin. It might be a season where you feel like it's just one failure after another, but he's using that to humble you. That's good. A season where you feel that you're under constant affliction. He's using that to cause you to depend upon him more and finally to cry out to him in prayer. It might be a season where you're suffering and suffering badly, but it's suffering that produces character. And it's character that produces endurance, steadfastness. Remember how James begins at the very beginning of the book. He said, rejoice in these trials that are visiting you. I'm not telling you that. James is telling you that. The Holy Spirit's telling you that. <laughs> rejoice. But why should you rejoice? Because he, know, he says, you know that this testing of your faith is producing steadfastness. And then he says something really important. He says, let steadfastness have its full effect. Let it run to the end of its completion. Let that season end the way God wanted it to be. Don't try to cut it short and don't pray the way we often pray to God. Make it stop, make it stop, make it stop. He said, you need to endure that season so you will be perfect. So you'll be complete, lacking in nothing. There's a fullness that these seasons bring out in us and we have to trust him that he knows what he's doing in these seasons. Again, verse 11, God created every season as beautiful for its time. It doesn't look beautiful from this vantage point. It looks like ugliness. It looks like a hot mess. But what he's doing is beautiful. And so this perspective of time is the perspective of faith. 
It's the perspective of eternity to understand these present sufferings and these seasons have to be seen in light of that eternal glory that awaits us. And of course, that's Romans 8.18. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Or the way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4.17. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are unseen, those are the things that will last. Those are the things that are eternal, and we can't see it. But again, we don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. We're trusting God who does sees it. And so we do what we, Scripture tells us to do again and again these seasons, to wait upon the Lord. Wait upon the Lord. You see, the Bible tells us there's, there's a completeness to our salvation. And to appreciate that what he is doing from the beginning to the end and everything in between, that's, that's what comes out in Romans 8.28. Usually, the way we preachers quote Romans 8.28, we say, those that God foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And that's accurate, but not completely, because I left something out. Because right in the middle of that sequence, right there, he said that those who he foreknew, he predestined. He said, and those he predestined, he was brought into conformity to his son. He's conforming to his son. How? Through suffering. That that is an essential link in that golden chain. That's a part of what God is doing in us. He's shaping us and molding us, conforming us to Christ in his death and his resurrection. That is essential. And we have to trust Christ for this sovereign lordship over our lives, that he is the forerunner and the finisher of our faith. As was read earlier, he is the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He's lord over everything. And all of it, all of it is beautiful. This is a great comfort that we have from this passage in light of the coming of Christ, that all these seasons in your life that seem never-ending or seem so difficult that, that he is managing this, and we need to trust him for it, as difficult as that is, but we need to trust him for it. It's a beautiful thing. But I've not shared with you the most beautiful thing. And it's the most amazing thing when we think of the gospel itself. And as we think it in, in light of a passage like this, that, that this is the most amazing thing. And it's how God has condescended to us in his son. And you know this. You know the gospel that we're talking about the eternal son of God entered into time. Entered into this created order and took footsteps in space, in time, a place on the planet we can point to where he stood and where he walked in, in time. Galatians 4 tells us that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. You see, in the plan of God, not just in your life, in the plan of God, everything has its right season. Even for the second person of the Trinity. And for the son of God, there was a time to be born, a time to take our nature upon himself and walk this earth. And for him, there was a time to seek and to save the lost. For him, there was a time to heal. There was a time to love. And as you open up the Gospels, you realize that, that Christ, as God, had this 
perfect and infinite knowledge of all things. And he knew exactly every season. He knew the right moment to do everything in his life and to execute it perfectly well. And in fact, we hear him saying again and again, my time has not yet come. You see this in John 2, the very first miracle he performs at the wedding feast. Mary comes to him and says, they've run out of wine. And he says, why do you involve me? He says, my time has not yet come. Later on in the Gospel of John, the crowd wants to come and to stone Jesus. They couldn't do it. Why not? Scripture says, but his time had not yet come. His brothers, his family realized Jesus is getting famous, and they say, go up to the feast. Make a name for yourself. How does Christ respond? He says, any time is good in your eyes, but my hour has not yet come. Well, we come to the end of John 12. On the eve of his passion. And we read of this torment that he is experiencing this season. And he says, my time has come. And he knows what awaits him in Jerusalem. He's been talking about it. He knows what's there. Where they will beat him. And mock him and flog him, crucify him. He knows this. And that's why he says in John 12, 27, Now is my soul troubled. He's never talked like this before in his ministry, but now he is because he knows. He knows the season he's about to enter. And he says, And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. This is Christ, the eternal Son of God, who is sovereign over all rule and authority and power and dominion. This is the King of space, the, the Lord over all time. And yet there is a time for every season for him. There was a time for him to be born, but now is the time to die. There was a time in his earthly ministry to bless, but now is the time for him to be cursed. There was always a time to heal, but now is the time for him to be afflicted. It was a time to rejoice, but now it is a time to weep. There was a time to comfort, but now is a time to be condemned. And as he says in this prayer, this is the reason why he came. And it's wrong for us to think of the gospel that this is a helpless victim. This is the wrong guy who was in the wrong place at the wrong time. That is exactly wrong. This is why he came. This is the whole purpose of his life. This is the right season. And all the ages turn on this this one moment in time, this one precious moment, and it is the hour of darkness. But it is an hour that God consecrates to his own purposes. This hour of darkness is an hour of redemption. The cross is a time to die. But it's much more than that. It is a time to defeat sin. It is a time to set sinners free so they might enjoy the forgiveness of sins and be delivered from that bondage to sin in its condemning power and its reigning power. And just as there's a time to die, there's a time to rise and to gain victory over death and the grave and to win eternal life for all those who trust in Lord Jesus Christ. There was a season for humiliation and for death, but now it is a season of exaltation and life 
and blessing because now Christ in his resurrection, what does he do? The great silencer of death is silenced. The devourer of death is devoured. Captivity is taken captive in the train of Christ. This is the one who holds the keys to death in Hades. It's Christ who gets the last word as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last and the beginning and the end. Time. Time is now the servant of Christ. It does exactly what he commands it to do for every believer. And it's Christ who causes everything in our life to work for good. That he who began this good work in you, he is carrying it forward through every season to its completion, to the day of Christ. We do not always experience time that way. But we will. Just wait and see. Let us pray. Our gracious God and our Father, we remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ who said that the time is near. I am coming soon. We can only pray the Lord Jesus come, come quickly. And yet, and yet, we pray that you would have your way in us and that we would not be impatient and that we would not walk by sight, but that we would walk by faith and trust you for every season, every moment, every day that you give to us as a gift. And so we pray, Father, that you would give us eyes to see and hearts to believe as we seek to follow Christ to carry our cross and to do so into glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.